All right, well, good morning. See, they didn't tell you I was preaching this morning because they knew you wouldn't show up. Once they got you here, it was too late. It's good to be back with you all. Uh, my wife and I, we've been gone for a couple Sundays. We were uh, having vacation with our family, uh, our two sons and their wives and our granddaughter. We all got together, went up to Philadelphia over July 4th, and went up to Poconos and, and then made it back the late last uh, Sunday. Um, but I was able to catch up on all the, the messages that have been given. You know that we're going through a topical study through Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. And two weeks ago, uh, we had one of our elders, Corey, was preaching on expository preaching, and certainly greatly appreciate that message. And, and that's really summarized in Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra stands up to preach, and beginning at morning till midday, he begins to read the scriptures, and he gives a sense to the meaning, and the people went away understanding what the scripture said and how it applies, which is what expository preaching is. And then last week, Mike was preaching and uh, saw there's some technical difficulties. And if that's going to happen to anybody, it should be Mike because he can conquer and overcome, uh, which he did, uh, teaching on church membership, the importance of that, and church reconciliation. And I, if I'm correct, I believe Brian is teaching next week on evangelism. Or Sam is. Okay, Sam is teaching on evangelism uh, next week. And my topic this morning is on the gospel and conversion which is why I titled the message, Saved from What and How and Converted to What. So my responsibility is basically to teach us everything from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 20. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, there's peace with God. In Revelation 21 and 22, there's peace with God. And so we're getting everything in between. And with the Bible that I'm using, with the margins and the fonts, we're going to be covering over 1,200 pages. But we will do that within an hour. An exceedingly concise and simplistic summary, the gospel and conversion is this. You're a whole lot worse than you think you are, and God is a whole lot better than you think he is. We are born naturally destined to go to a place far worse than we could ever imagine to pay God eternity for our sins. But in Christ... We can be made new, we can have a new relationship with the Lord, one of peace, go to a place that's far more wonderful and magnificent than we can ever imagine or think. Our key thought for this morning is this. Turn from sin to Christ and live a new life for which man was originally created. Turn from sin to Christ and live a new life for which we were originally created with Adam and Eve. We have three points this morning to support that key thought. First, wake up to your danger and to why Christ came, the gospel. Second, repent and believe in the gospel, which is conversion. And then I added one for myself, which wasn't necessarily in the book, but be sure you have been converted. The convert versus the false convert that we'll touch on right at the end. But first, wake up to your danger and why Christ came. Why did he come? He didn't come just for Christmas. He didn't come just for Easter. He just didn't come to be a, a cursor when you hit your hammer or you hit your thumb with your nail. Have you ever been to the point in your life when you know that you're in trouble with God? Have you ever been to that point? Have you ever felt the weight of guilt knowing that you're going to face a holy, righteous, all-powerful God and you're in trouble? 
before I was converted, I got converted in the Marine Corps, um, I had done something which I knew if you do this, you're going to hell. I did a lot of bad things, but I knew if you did this, I'm going to hell. I'm not going to say what it is because I'm ashamed of it. We should be ashamed of our sin. But I knew I was going to hell, and I walked away from this place with my friend telling him, I'm going to hell. There's nothing I can do. I don't know a lot about the Bible, but I said, if, it, if I do this, I'm going to hell. And then several, weeks, several months later, I met a young lady, and she tried to tell me about the Bible, but I wasn't interested. And she said, well, just read the Bible. And you know, in the Bible, or in boot camp, they give you a little Gideon's Bible, or at least they used to, King James Version. And so I just started reading it, one of the Gospels, and I realized, before I realized I was in trouble with God, I was already in trouble with God. And yet Jesus came to rescue bad people, and I qualified. And that's all I knew. And I asked God to save me. I didn't even know the difference between the Old and the New Testament. I thought that the Old Testament was the old King James language, because that's what I was reading. I went to a Christian bookstore. I pulled a book off the Bible that said the New Testament. I could read it. It was the New King James. But I could read it more clearly. I thought the Old Testament was that Old English, and the New Testament was this modern English. I didn't know that for months until that one girl who uh, told me about the Lord uh, came and gave me an entire Bible with all 66 books. And I thought, oh, that's the Old Testament. Something else I couldn't understand is I was on Guam, and there's a lot of people groups in Guam. And I could not understand how the Filipinos could live so sinfully when they had a book in the Bible that was written to them. <laughs> I thought that the book of Philippians was written to the Filipinos. I didn't know anything. But I did know that I was in trouble and God came to rescue bad people, and I qualified. Have you ever experienced that point where Moses was talking about in the book of Deuteronomy, where you fear the Lord? Or as Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, 4 and 5, not just fearing those who kill the body, but fearing him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Jesus said, yes, fear him. Have you been to that point where you fear God because of your sin? It is the fear of God that puts us on the path of wisdom, Proverbs 1, 7. Wisdom is not marked by what we know, but by how we live. And part of how we live is in fear of the Lord. A wise person walks in that fear. Again, have you felt the weight of your guilt with an enormous fear before God? Have you felt that? If you have not, then I need to ask you, are you truly a Christian? Are you truly a Christian? Because if you don't know your awful guilt and God's awful righteousness, then what have you been saved from? What have you asked him to save you from? Part of the gospel is knowing that in your natural state, you're bad. I'm bad. We're far worse than we think we are. Our goals are bad. Our motivations are bad. We speak bad. We are bad. We are totally what? Depraved. That's the theological term. Totally depraved. Isaiah 64, 6, the prophet says this. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are as a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Take us away from the Lord, take us into the pit of hell. And notice they're all. It's just a little Hebrew word, coal. For all. All have become like one who is unclean. Every one of us. All of our righteous deeds, the things that we think would earn right standing for the Lord, are nothing more than a filthy garment before him, a woman's menstrual cloth. And all of us wither. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Solomon writes this. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 
we're in trouble with God outside of Christ. So part of the gospel is that before God, you are bad and at best a filthy rag before him. You, but also me. Another component of the gospel is that God is holy and just, and by his nature, he must, he must punish sin. He must punish sin. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God bringing judgment on people for their false worship, for following false teachers, false prophets, and a corrupt theology. And all the while they're doing that, they think they're worshiping God. They think they have peace with God. They consider themselves worshipers, but they integrated the teaching, the philosophy of the world into their lives. And because of that, God brought calamity to them. Likewise, suffering in general is an effect of living in a world of sin and is a foretaste of God's just and holy wrath that's coming towards his enemies. Suffering because of sin in this life is only representative of what awaits us at death outside of Christ. A third element of the gospel is that Jesus came to save really bad people and to absorb God's just and holy wrath and punishment as our substitute. Charles Feinberg, mentor to John MacArthur, he said this in a journal I read recently. Despite all these many subjects so faithfully presented and discussed in the scriptures, there is but one central theme throughout the entire book. The redemption of sinful man by a holy and righteous God through the willing sacrifice of God's Son on the cross of Calvary for all men. That is the central theme of Scriptures. That's a central theme from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. You're really bad. God is really good. And he sent an escape in his son. Feinberg's really just summarizing what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. And let me just pause here for a second. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to those who are confessing to be believers. Because the gospel is not just, you know, hear some news and get saved. But the gospel is for believers. Part of our sanctification to remind ourselves of the gospel. So that's what Paul's been doing in 1 Corinthians. He says, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You can hear the gospel and have a belief, but it's a vain belief, an empty belief. Unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. God accomplishes the central theme of the gospel redemption because he is sovereign. And so no one or nothing can thwart his plan. He will hold us near. He doesn't let go. As MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But God is sovereign. He is the creator of all and all is under his authority, under his rule. And he doesn't compromise. In his sovereignty, in his love, and his faithfulness, he elects to save sinners in a manner that does not disregard his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, nor his peace, nor his kindness, nor his mercy, nor his grace. Psalm 85.10 Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed one another. They've done that in Christ. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. 
It's in Jesus, our mediator, that the law of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God, the truth of God, meet his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness, and his grace towards sinners. In Jesus, the holiness and justice of God and the grace and mercy and love of God are satisfied. And God is glorified and we are rescued. Again, as we're talking about the gospel, remember we're summarizing Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 20. So as we hit the second point, I'm just going to hit a few key points and just give a definition. There's going to be a lot of verses on these. You can write these verses down. You can look these up for further study on your own. But within the gospel is substitution. Substitution. Jesus takes on the guilt of our sin. God puts on his righteousness and his perfection. That imputation. He took our guilt and we take on his righteousness. He was our substitute. Why on the cross did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you wouldn't be if you had come to him. He will never leave us or forsake us if we're in Christ. Substitution, our filthy, filthy rags are removed and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There's substitution, there's propitiation. That is the wrath of God that was placed on us because of our sin is lifted off of us and was put on Christ when he was on the cross. Substitution, propitiation. God's wrath against the sinner for his sin is satisfied by Christ and the believer escapes. Again, what did Jesus say on the cross? To Telestai. It is finished. And basically what that word meant is if you went to the marketplace that day and you bought something and you asked for a receipt, they'd write there on Telestai, paid in full. Reconciliation. Through the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit, a believer is sealed and reconciled to God, no longer separated from him because we are more separated from God. But reconciliation, we now have peace with God. We're no longer his enemies, as it talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, Romans chapter 5. And there's justification. Being declared innocent, not just forgiven. Right? If you go before a court, the judge, maybe they'll forgive you. You're still guilty, but they forgive you. But if they say justified, they say, hey, all the evidence has been brought in, and you're innocent. In Christ, it's as though we've never sinned, and we're one with the Lord. As God penned through Isaiah 118, Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be wool. We are justified. And there's adoption. Instead of remaining sons of wrath, having Satan as our father, God adopts the believer into his family, and we become his children. And we cry out to him, Abba, Father. And there's glorification. God will perfect the work that he began in us, right? Philippians 1, 6. And he, we will be changed and conformed to the body of Christ. The result is if you are truly Christ's disciple, if you are truly Christ's disciple, then you are no longer condemned. The Son has set you free. Jesus has wiped out your debt and paid it full. This is the gospel. Amen. The gospel, the good news of God, is that you are really, really bad. You are totally depraved, but God is really, really gracious and merciful. And he sent his best gift to his son, his beloved son, to be the substitute for you so that you could be saved and come to him and have a peaceful relationship with him. But you need to come to him on his terms. 
You need to come to him on his terms, which is our next point. Conversion. Repent and believe the gospel. The stipulations God requires for salvation, for justification, for adoption, for peace, is repentance and faith. Repentance and belief bringing about conversion. What is conversion? What is conversion? To operate contrary to our spiritually dead and depraved nature because of being awakened to life and favor and obedience to God as our Lord and Savior. Conversion is you're dead in sin and you're alive in Christ. Sin was your master. Grace is your master. As MacArthur comments in his theology book, Biblical Doctrine, he says, quote, Together, repentance and faith make up the single act of conversion. You don't have conversion if you don't have faith and you don't have repentance. And God must grant repentance. And that repentance is based on grace alone, not anything we work for, earn, or deserve. Paul writes to Timothy, With gentleness correcting those for opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. God must grant that repentance. As we're evangelizing people, as we're seeking the Lord to save people, we're praying, Lord, grant them repentance. Lord, just don't pray, Lord, help me just be a skillful communicator. Help me, Lord, just to be able to, you know, just give the gospel in such a way that they would have to be saved. No, it's a spiritual work. Lord, grant them repentance, that they would turn from their sins. Acts 11.18 is another verse you can look up on your own. Acts 11.18. But what is repentance? Repentance is that proverbial U-turn where you turn from sin Away from it. You, you turn and you live a different way of life. You turn from living contrary to the character of God. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11 is a good definition of repentance. And along that line, let me just also recommend uh, Thomas Watson's book, The Doctrine of Repentance. The book I use often. I use it in counseling. I had a theology pro- or a professor in seminary. He said, if it's old, it's gold. If it's new, you better review. So if you're reading the Puritans, you're pretty safe. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world, which we might call remorse, the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And everything you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Notice, this is something that has happened to us. You Look at verse 7. I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful. You didn't make yourself sorrowful. That's a passive verb. You were made sorrowful. He says again, you're made sorrowful what? To repentance. And it goes on to say, for you're made sorrowful according to God, katathion, according to God, for the purposes of God. And again, it goes down to verse 11. This godly sorrow has produced something in you. It changes your life when you're under this grace that leads to repentance. Repentance includes the confession of sin to God, the acceptance of the consequences for your sins, accepting those consequences, And then also a growing hatred and vindication for your sins, like God hates sin. A longing not to sin against God anymore. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is a good example of a person who repentance. 
Right? What did he say? He said, Lord, of all that I've taken, all that I've used here, Lord, that I will give up to half of what I've given to the poor. And those I took from illegally, I exhorted, I'll pay them back four times as much. Accepting the guilt and then paying the consequences. Repentance is what Jesus is teaching in the parable in Matthew 18, 7 through 9, about plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand. That's repentance. One day I was sharing the gospel in a food court, and, you know, evangelism explosion, the way of the master, using some of those questions, you know, going through the Ten Commandments and stuff like that. And I said, hey, have you ever lied? He said, of course I have. I'm in sales. Right? Well, repentance may mean that you need to get a new job. Repentance may mean that you need to do your job a little differently. So repentance is a gift of God's grace. Likewise, God must grant faith, which also is based on grace alone. Repentance is turning from your sin, and faith is turning to Christ. Putting your hope, your trust, your loyalty, your allegiance to Him. You don't have one without the other. Ephesians 2, 5, and 8, and 9. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, totally depraved, wickedly bad, dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you had been saved. It had to be by grace because the righteous deeds that we do are what? Filthy rags. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Like Repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, there's a lot of other verses you can look up for that. John 6.44, Philippians 1.29. And the means God uses to apply His grace and give faith is through the hearing and the reading of God's Word. Right? Romans 10.17. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. Because God's Word is living and active. When I was reading that little King James Bible, that Gideon Bible, there's no way they're explaining anything to me, but God's Word is living and active. Paul says in what, Romans chapter 1, it's the power of God to salvation. It does its work. Faith comes from hearing and reading. The tax collector in the temple is an example of one who had faith. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he could do. Cry out, Lord, for mercy. Faith. Jesus said he went away justified. You think about the one thief on the cross. Here's a guy on the cross looking at a guy next to him who's been beaten up, who's bloodied, who's being mocked, who's being humiliated, he also is dying and says, save me. Puts his faith and trust in a dying man. That's faith. Grace is the cause for salvation. Grace is the cause for salvation. And repentance and faith are the means by which salvation is realized. So we say, grace is shot out, and when grace is shot out, there goes faith and there goes repentance. So that you can believe and you turn from your sin. Repentance and faith mark one who had been given grace by God. Matthew Mead, again, another Puritan, he wrote a book called The Almost Christian Discovered. Uh, recommend you. It's a little bit of a harder read, but it's very good. Just as the title says, he's going through this book, saying how so many people think they're a Christian, but they're not. That's the title of the almost Christian, right? You're either Christian or not. But the, the whole thesis of the book is people who do all these things, and yet they're not saved. And he writes this, and the italics is in the original. It is beyond the power of the greatest gift to change a heart. A man may preach like an apostle, 
pray like an angel, yet may have the heart of a devil. It is grace only that can change the heart. The greatest gifts cannot change it, but the least grace can. Gifts may make a man a scholar, but grace makes man a believer. Unquote. Grace is what makes one a convert. Grace is what makes one who's really, really bad, totally bad, at peace with God, who's really, really good. Now, our responsibility and the result of God's grace doing a work in our life is that we submit to Jesus as Lord. We ask God to forgive us of our sins. Romans 10, 9 and 13. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, again, out of the bunch of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, you're confessing Christ as Lord. It's not like, well, you know, when I was 18, I, just, I made Jesus Lord of my life. No, he's already Lord. You're just rebelling against that lordship or you're willfully submitting to that lordship. He's already Lord. And we're confessing our sins to him. We're also accountable to answer the general call of God to repent and believe in Jesus. We are accountable to that. Mark 1.15, Jesus is preaching. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Be converted. Turn from your sin and follow me. We're also required to humble ourselves in order to be converted and to be saved. Matthew 18.3 Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted, repent and believe, and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter, that's a double negation in the Greek, ume. You will never, ever, 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 ever enter the kingdom of heaven unless you humble yourself like a child. Never. When God grants you grace to believe and repent, and you humble yourself before the Lordship of Christ, You are born from above by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus talks about in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. You're no longer condemned. You will never, ever, ever spend any time in hell. Jesus said this in John 10, 28. He said, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What do you think that they will never perish is? Who may? Never, ever, 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 ever perish. Because he holds on to us and he doesn't let go. God's word, or Jesus' work, was sufficient. John 5, 24, again, Jesus says, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death to life. John 5, 24. Does have eternal life. Doesn't mean they might have eternal life. They could have it one day. They could have it and lose it. Know that they have eternal life, and they have passed out of death to life. Never to enter into that spiritual place of hell, that real place of hell, paying for their sins. In conversion, Christ not only died to make you better, but he died to make you new, to convert you. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, new things have come. He doesn't come to make you better, he came to make you new. He doesn't come to improve your badness. He came to make you good in his sight. Those who repent and believe God have become has-beens. Those who repent of their sin and have faith in God, they become has-beens. 
Do I have those verses up there? I think there's a, a slide up there maybe for this. Those who repent and believe God turns into has-beens. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I don't have this on my slide. We're just going to read this one anyhow. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Turn there or open up your app or whatever it is you use. So again, Paul's right here. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ah, verse 11. Such were some of you. You used to be that way, but you're has been. You're no longer that way. That's no longer your identity. Such were some of you, but what? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. We are a bunch of has-beens. You are converted and now have a new, peaceful, friendly relationship with God. You are converted. You now have a new identity in Christ. You are converted. You now have new pursuits. You have new priorities. You are a has-been with a new way of living, and you respond differently now to temptation, and you live under a new master. Romans six eleven through 14. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. We're converted. We're has-beens. We used to use our body as instruments for sin, and now we use it for righteousness, to bring God glory for his kingdom. First Peter 1, 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Put away those former lusts, and now seek to live holy. And he goes on saying in verse 16, be holy for I am holy. That's our identity. We're a bunch of has-beens. The fruit of conversion is denying yourself and following Christ. Mark chapter 8, 34 through 38. In order to be converted and rescued from God's wrath, you must humble yourself and repent and believe the gospel. Question is, what are you converted to? You're converted to be a new creation. You're converted to have a new relationship with God, that one is of an adoption, an adopted child, no longer an enemy. Third, lastly, be sure you have been converted. Be sure you have been converted. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself to see if you are a true convert. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul writes to those in a church, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Jesus warned in Matthew 7.21-23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They were just dressed in filthy rags. They thought they were saved. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, People can be in a local church and hear the gospel, but believe in vain. 
False converts know about Jesus, but he does not know them. They are not his sheep. False converts may spend time hearing God's word, but they do not apply it to life. Jesus is just something they sort of tacked onto their life. Right? They still do their same job. They still have their hobbies. Still watch the same shows. Still listen to the same music. Still hang out with the same people. Still drinking the same stuff. Still taking the same stuff. But I also read my Bible occasionally, and I go to church on Sunday as well. Jesus is just sort of something added onto an already depraved lifestyle often. In contrast, true converts spend time to hear God's word and then seek to apply that word to their life. They listen to expository preaching, and then they go home, they seek to live that out Monday through Saturday. And Sunday. False converts might confess faith in Christ, but the evidence of their life demonstrates allegiance to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and they're caught up and driven by pride and selfishness. True converts give evidence of saying no to sin, no to temptation, yes to God. A true convert can be alone with his computer and not go to places he shouldn't go to. Not just when somebody's watching him or her. True converts give evidence of following Christ. And when they fail, and we do fail, we do sin at times, they don't hide the sin, but they confess it, both to the Lord and perhaps to others that they need to make aware of it as well. Proverbs 28.13 encourages us here. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have compassion. 1 John 1, 1.9 we're all familiar with. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Right? We're, we're all there somewhere, whether in thought or action. So as we're thinking about our relationship with the Lord... We need to look at our life. Does it produce the deeds of the flesh or the works or the excuse me, the fruit of the spirit? Galatians five, nineteen through twenty four. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, crowsing. And things like these. At which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not enter the kingdom of God. Depart from me, I never knew you. But, the convert, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Have we done that? Which group do we most resemble? Are you feeding or crucifying the sinful passions and desires? What are we doing? In general, assurance of conversion and salvation is progressing in sanctification. That's our assurance, following after Christ. Increasing knowledge and doing religious stuff can only lead to false assurance. But growing in Christ-likeness, loving God more and the things of God more, and hating your sin more indicates true conversion. You're really, really bad. You deserve God's wrath. But if you recognize that and recognize that Jesus came to save really bad people, that's conversion. Turn from that and turn to Christ.
So in conclusion, first of all, wake up to your danger and to why Christ came. Wake up to your danger and why Christ came. Second, repent and believe in the gospel. And third, be sure you have been converted. And before we close out here for this morning, I just want to spend a few moments of just meditating on this passage, right? I'm talking about biblical meditation. Just before you and the Lord, we're going to close our eyes, not do an altar call or anything like that. Just want to have you close your eyes and just sort of do some business with the Lord. And just want to give you some questions. They're right up here on the um, slide, I think. But have you awakened to your danger and why Christ came? Have you been there? Have you felt the fear of God? Are you repenting and believing the gospel? Is it true of you? Are you doing that? Is there evidence that you are not a false convert? Are you a has-been that's now producing the fruit of the Spirit? So let's just spend a few moments. I'm not going to do this for an extensive amount of time, but I'll just ask you to close your eyes and just sort of do some business with the Lord. Then I'll close us all, and then Trent and the team will come up and lead us in singing. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for wickedly bad people. Father, I pray that you would grant grace to each one that's hearing this message. Lord, that you would grant us repentance and faith, turning from sin and following you. Lord, awaken any that may be here as a false convert, Lord, or perhaps somebody here and they know they're not a believer. Lord, that you would do a work of grace within their heart. Draw them to yourself. Seal them with your spirit. Cause them to be born again. Make them a has-been to your glory and